Well, I guess you know we're going to do a little Bible study this morning in the uh, freedom of the pulpit that Clay gives me. He said, you got to preach a parable. It's got to come from Matthew's gospel. And it's got to relate to the uh, annual stewardship campaign that begins today. So I picked this parable about a man, a father who had two sons. And as we listen to this parable, and we're going to hear it enough times today, we're going to remember it. They say that reading the scripture can be like looking in a mirror. Do you see yourself in this parable? More specifically, which of these two sons would describe you and the way that you have responded to the Lord? A man had two sons. He tells his two sons to go work in the vineyard that day. So as we read that, does the man represent God? Do the two sons represent us and what God asks of us? The first son very abruptly and discourteously refused his father's wishes. I will not, he says. But then later he changed his mind and he went and did it. The second son, very respectfully, very politely said, certainly, Father, I will go. But he didn't. Then Jesus asked, which of these two sons did the will of the Father? Which son brought joy to the Father's heart? So do you see what I mean about looking in the mirror when you're reading the scriptures? We can see ourselves in these biblical passages. Jesus is talking about us, about you and me. In the history of our relationship with God, your relationship with God, which of these two sons is more descriptive of the way that you have been? All right, let's think about the second son, the one who said, I will go, but he didn't. Who does he represent? Whether it's 2,000 years ago or in the world today, he represents those whose profession of faith is much greater than their practice of the faith. They give what we call lip service to God. But Jesus makes it very clear that that's, it's not what we say, but what we do that really matters. Promises never take the place of performance. Words are never substitutes for deeds. And Jesus said at one point in his ministry very clearly, not all who cry, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, only those who do the will of God. We also read in the New Testament letter of James that faith without works is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. By my works, I will show you my faith. Jesus always challenged religious hypocrisy or pretended devotion. And one group that he highly criticized 
were the scribes and the Pharisees who put on a great religious show but lacked the practice of that religion. They liked to wear long robes with tassels on them to show how religious they were. They liked to pray in public so that they would be seen. They liked to be recognized with the seats of honor wherever they might be. They made such a big deal by showing how religious they claimed to be, yet in reality, they were the ones who ended up crucifying Jesus. Jesus condemned them very harshly, calling them hypocrites. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he said repeatedly. You wash the outside of the cup, but not the inside. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly look so beautiful, but inside are full of rottenness, decay, and uncleanness. They were like that second son who said, yes, I will go, but then never did it. Today, we see those who are like the second son. Where do we find them? Where would you say they are? Could it be that they're the ones who put Christian bumper stickers on their cars and they are quick to wear Christian jewelry, but they treat other people in any way but Christian? Could they be those who say they believe in the Bible, but they never read it? Could they be those who say they believe in the power of prayer, but they don't really pray? Could they be the ones who join a church, but never attend? Could they be church members who accept the nomination as deacon, but never do what deacons are supposed to do? Would you agree or disagree that there are many who claim to be followers of Jesus, who certainly want him as their savior so they can go to heaven someday, but they've never really accepted him as their Lord and master? which is what's really necessary for that passage to heaven and the kingdom. Many years ago, there was a man who moved to Memphis and joined our church. And when I learned about him, I learned that in previous churches, he had been chairman of the board, chairman of the elders, chairman of the deacons, headed up the annual stewardship campaign, headed up capital campaigns, held many other positions of leadership in former churches where he had been in Oklahoma. And I got all excited about what he had to offer to our church. He was a corporate CEO with many gifts, talents, and resources. And he and his wife joined our church. Their kids had grown and were out on their own. So I thought that he would have even more time to do the work of the Lord. But you know, I could never get him to do anything. He didn't want to serve on any committees or boards. He didn't want to do any volunteer ministry. He didn't want to be involved in mission work. It seemed that the higher he climbed the corporate ladder, the less he wanted to do for the Lord. And then during the years he was in Memphis, his attendance in worship dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. And then he and his wife moved to Florida. And as far as I know, they never even attended any church 
in Florida. At the time that I would think his discipleship would grow the strongest, it seemed to grow the weakest. So he was like that second son who said, yes, I'll go, Father. And he did at first for a number of years. He got off to a great start obeying his father. But then for whatever reason, he began to fall away and eventually totally stopped doing what his father wanted. So how's that for looking into a scriptural mirror? Again, I say, which of these two sons would be more descriptive of you? We say yes to Jesus when we're baptized, but how well do we follow up on that promise over the years? Let's think about the other son in the parable. He was the son who said, no, I won't go. But he later changed his mind and he went. He represents those who redeem themselves, or you might say sinners who are transformed. He represents those whose practice is greater than their profession. He represents those who seem to have no interest in church or religion, and yet they still live good lives. He's the opposite to me of the man I told you about from Oklahoma. He is one of many who at first have nothing to do with God or the church, but then as life takes its journey, they come to realize that what is truly most important in life has to do with God and they completely turn their lives around. Some of the greatest servants of God, even ministers that I have known, are those who at first refuse to listen to God's call, but later, even in midlife, giving up successful secular careers, they go to seminary and they enter the ministry. My dad was one of those. His father, my grandfather, after whom Clay and I are both named, was a minister and encouraged my father to go into the ministry. But my dad resisted it. He became instead a lawyer and then a politician and then a teacher and then he even dabbled in real estate before he finally yielded to God and became one of the best ministers I've ever known. In fact, if it weren't for him, I doubt if I would be a minister. It's never too late to turn your life around to become a servant of God. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past or how bad your past may have been. God can always use you to make a difference for good in this world. When Jesus tells this story about the two sons, he then says, which one did the will of the father? Which one brought joy to the father's heart? And the scribes and Pharisees immediately said, well, of course, it was the first son who said no and then later did it. But then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Isn't such transformation what Christianity is all about? 
And the scriptures are filled with examples of people who at first refused God's will and then later changed their minds. Some of the greatest leaders in the Bible tried to keep from doing what God wanted. But Jesus knew that such irreligious people can more easily be awakened to their spiritual needs than can the self-righteous. So what about the world today in light of Jesus' comments? Who would you say will enter the kingdom of God first? The church elder who is an alcoholic but nobody knows it? Or the reformed wino who humbly prays every day for forgiveness and strength? Who will enter the kingdom first? The preacher who doesn't practice what he preaches? Or the prison parolee who never misses a Sunday in church? Who will enter the kingdom first? The president of the men's group in the church who embezzles money at work? Or the former prostitute who has never stolen a penny from anybody? Who will enter the kingdom first? The CEO who earns 700,000 a year and gives 15,000 a year to the church and charity? Or the widow on social security who gets a check for $300 a month and writes a check to the church each month for $35. Who will enter the kingdom first? The death row inmate who is converted to Christianity like the thief on the cross? Or the lifelong church member who never really gets converted to Christianity? I'm sure you can think of a lot more examples about who will enter the kingdom first in doing like Jesus did in response to the teaching of this parable. Jesus said, which son did the will of the father? And the Pharisee said, well, the first one. But could there have been another answer? Could there have been another son who would have truly brought joy to the will of the father? Could that not have been a son who said on the front end, yes, father, I will go. And then he did it. Wouldn't he have brought more joy to the Father and to the Lord than any other? All right, so let's bring it all down to where we are today. A certain church in Nashville, Tennessee, was having its annual stewardship campaign to raise and underwrite the operating budget for another year. The minister asked everyone who was a part of the church to make a pledge so the church could plan on what they had to operate to do the Lord's work for another year. Now, who will please that preacher more? The church member who says, no, I don't believe in pledging, but then turns around and makes a pledge? Or the church member who says, oh yes, of course I'll make a pledge, but then never does, or makes a pledge, but never pays it. Of course, most people would say, well, the first one, did the will of the preacher who said no but then did it but now couldn't there be another kind of church member who would be even more pleasing to the preacher and bring more joy to the Lord and to the preacher the kind who would say yes of course I'll make a pledge and does it right away and could there be even another kind of church member who uh, 
brings no joy to the preacher or to the Lord, the one who says, no, I don't want to pledge and will not do it and doesn't do it. Here's the mirror. Where do you see yourself in this story? What will your response be to our annual stewardship campaign? Will you or won't you?